Hello, and welcome to the Third Age Design Podcast, sharing essential information on senior environments. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley, and this month we continue our review of the World Series of Design, where we'll be speaking with the head of medicine and a specialist in neurodegenerative disorders about a unique village in France where every resident has dementia, and how they've used light and dark to maintain levels of independence seldom found elsewhere. In fact, this development is so innovative that it's both our key interview and our innovation spotlight rolled into one. Albert Einstein, so beautifully portrayed by Tom Conti in the recent film Oppenheimer, said, well, not in the film, mind you, but said anyway, do not grow old, no matter how long you live. Never cease to stand like curious children before the great mystery into which we are born. And so very much is a mystery. And the Third Age Design and this podcast are here to provide you with research which unpicks new concepts and innovations that we can all use to improve senior living environments in our own countries. And if you haven't already, why not go to our website at thirdage.design and hit the Join Us button. You'll automatically receive this quarter's A Tad Extra, exclusive information for our community members. And this quarter, it's priceless as we share an interview with the husband of a resident at the French village we're about to feature on today's episode. Let me just say, you will be moved. Okay, let's get started. According to the World Alzheimer's Report 2023, published by Alzheimer's Disease International, the World Health Organization estimates that 1 billion people were over the age of 60 in 2020, and that this age category will double to 2.1 billion people by 2050, two-thirds of whom will be living in lower and middle-income countries. Now, the number of people living in dementia across the world is expected to rise from 55 million, which was back in 2019, to 139 million by 2050. And remember, two-thirds of these people will be living in lower and middle-income countries. The current models of dementia care are really unlikely to be sufficient. So let's look at a new model right now, which took its starting point from the Hogevik village in the Netherlands, but then went in a totally new direction. My guest today is Gail-Marie Baul, the aforementioned head of medicine at Le Village Lande, located in Dax in southwestern France. And this is the village where residents tend to the gardens, they check on the donkeys, there's no cash or prices in the village supermarket, and where staff walk among the residents without any clear identification, and where extensive research is underway as to how living a life of, well, freedom in a safe environment is being tested against medication levels, depression, and anxiety. Our interview today was assisted by translator Anita Herbert and former US public radio announcer Valerie Adler was integral to the interview and will be speaking Gail's answer for us in English. Just remember, the transcript is available in 13 languages on our website at www.thirdage.design. Gail, we understand that the creation of the village was inspired by Hogvik village in the Netherlands 
and it's a project that very many people know about. But I read that you wanted to push the notion of autonomy even further and to examine your results with a very scientific approach. So could you expand on that for us? In fact, at the moment, there are only around 10 such villages in the world, but they are not all the same size and do not have the same number or type of residents, nor even the same approach to care. And no one had really done research on this type of project. So when we talk about autonomy, it is really more around the notion of freedom of movement for residents who are at liberty to come and go at their own pace according to their needs and desires. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about what is most important to consider when you're trying to find the balance between safety and autonomy? We think in terms of securing rather than security. It's a question of nuance. By this I mean that it is necessary to keep people safe, but not to remove risk altogether, because there are always risks in performing activities that make us feel content, whether that is the risk of falling, cutting oneself, or eating something that is not okay to eat. Therefore, we try to give someone back his autonomy, the freedom to act as one wishes, to the extent that one is able. I think it may be difficult to answer this, but how do you evaluate this? How do you correctly juggle between the two? All this will reveal itself as we look at our research and we discuss what we see. The problem here is that the research time is different from the time of journalists or politicians or even the time of caregivers. Not everything comes at once, and doing observational research takes time. By which I mean, for two years we will be watching the result of what we are doing, and then we will deliver our findings. And we're not there yet. Thank you. And we do understand that the research is an important part of what you do at the Village Lende. I found four things on your website that you are specifically studying as does the Landai Alzheimer's Village have a positive impact on people's quality of life, their social participation, and their health? Does it improve the quality of life at work for professionals that are working there? Is it based on a viable and reproducible model? And also, that the research program also includes a medico-economic study which will evaluate the cost and effectiveness ratio of the project. Now, which to you is the most important bit of research that you're carrying out at the moment? In fact, the village itself is the subject of research at the moment, inasmuch as there is an independent team, in fact, two independent teams, who are observing our system. What is a village? What is our village? How do we work? There is a team from Anselm, from nearby Bordeaux, and a second neuropsychology team. Professor Amieva has already done a lot of research on the elderly and other research in psychosociology around caregiving. So all the questions you list are the questions that research will have to answer after at least two years of observation. So the positive impact or not on the quality of life and on the four large groups of people who are observed, that is to say the villagers, the professionals, the volunteers and the family caregivers, so it's quality of life, but also other things. That's the main parameter. And the secondary parameters, mainly behavioral disorders and cognitive levels, and the socioeconomic survey, which will evaluate the cost-effectiveness ratio. Thank you. And we understand that the village and its research are largely financed by public money. So in light of your results so far, is the village considered a success by its funders? 
And are you confident that you'll receive continued funding? Le village landais euh, est un modèle village expérimental. Is an experimental Donc, model, so we operate in this capacity. There is a five-year renewal period. How will that work? The funds were given for the period of 2016 to 2021, and as we were only able to open in June 2020, we were renewed at that point with these same so-called experimental funds. And then, in 2027, this period of experimentation will cease, and we will have to adopt a more typical model or create a new model for financing. So we are really waiting for results on the research, since a priori it will be based on that, at least for the observational research by which I mean, how is this village, this way of doing things, where there are particular criteria for being a village, actually reproducible? And for an organization, is it perhaps worth investing more initially? And maybe afterwards we get other things out of it, even if the initial investment is more important in the short term. But maybe in the medium and long term, we land on our feet, as they say in France. Now, a specific objective at Le Village Londay is to reduce or even eliminate medications. How is that going? So we can say that this objective was established not so much by doctors as by many people, perhaps by families, because there was a great fear of psychotropic medications and also the possible overuse of this type of medication. I want to rectify that when we talk about reducing or eliminating medications, Firstly, people who have Alzheimer's disease don't just have Alzheimer's disease. So I doubt that in the village we will reduce blood pressure, diabetes, or other pathologies, and these will always require the relevant types of medication. On the other hand, the fact that we always have physicians in the village, there are three, makes it possible to better prevent, to be more quickly at the bedside of the villager, since we are always there, and therefore we can surely reduce the number of hospitalizations and reduce over-medication because of the expertise of the doctors who are here, and through my specific psychogeriatric expertise, to support the villagers and the team. So you're moving towards the reduction of these psychotropic drugs while knowing that the rest must still be continued. So is that reduction actually happening? And with the reduction, are behavioral problems of those affected more severe? Are they more difficult to manage, in other words, in the absence of the psychotropic drugs? Because those are, after all, a bit of a sedation. So, when we talk about psychotropic medications, in fact, I'm speaking with my pure doctor hat on, we use psychotropic medications in the face of behavioral disorders, which are very frequently added to with the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. And so, in fact, we use symptomatic medications, that is to say, in the face of a delusional idea, when it is too significant or when it has too great an intensity or frequency, we use these medications to reduce the impact that it has for both the villager and for those around him. So if we want to reduce these psychotropic medications, we have to prevent these behavioral disorders. So the whole idea is to say that with a different, more humane system, we will be able to reduce these behavioral disorders and therefore manage to reduce the psychotropic medications. It's an avalanche of things, in fact. Yes, and of course, at Third Age Design, that's us, we're interested in how your results can be linked to the principles of design and architecture, and also how a space is organized for things to work best for the residents. There are things that you already have in place for this. Can you explain them? 
So given the fact that it is a village established on five hectares, what is very important for me really is the freedom to come and go. These five hectares are wooded with plants that already existed before and it is entirely secured by a barrier, but one which is almost completely hidden by plants. And so one has the feeling of freedom and of going where and when one wants. That is very important because it reduces constraints. When someone who already feels constrained and diminished and prevented by their illness from being able to do this or that thing, well, if we add more constraints, it will increase their behavioral problems. This park is for people in addition to the villagers who are used to being outside because in the land we're often outside due to the weather, but also these are people, many of them from agricultural backgrounds, who were often outside and who had a relationship with nature which is important for them. Regarding possible disorientation in the space, what we tell them is it doesn't matter if they don't find their way back because there's always a human being on the path to take them home. Whether it's a villager, a volunteer, or a professional, they will always find someone in the park. Knowing that between each neighborhood there is a path that is clearer, which in general they do not leave because it's much lighter than the rest of the natural surrounding, which is green or lined with pine trees. On the website for Village Londe, I saw just for a second a fence at the side of a lake, but really nothing else. It's all just open space. And I could also see the use of different colors in different areas. Indeed, the fence is much more visible when you cross the bridge, since you can cross from one side of the village to the other, above the three small ponds. So that's really where it can be seen. It's 1.8 meters high. Even where it is in the green areas, we see it, but when we traverse the park and we take the overall view, we hardly notice it. Now, in relation to the colors of the neighborhood, effectively there are four districts, and each district has a particular color. It's really more for those who still have the ability to remember their color, the color of their neighborhood, and to make a mnemonic device. But it's not used so much by the villagers as by their families. In the different neighborhoods, does the decor inside also differ? So there are four neighborhoods with four colors, and in each neighborhood there are four houses around a small square. And that makes a neighborhood. The four houses each have a slightly different style of decoration, but which does not correspond to what was put forward in Hogewijk in the Netherlands. It's not based on differences in socio-cultural level. It's just a different decor. And do the residents learn their particular colors? This is the very principle of Alzheimer's disease. It's being unable to learn new things. So it's difficult, but for those who still have the capacity at the start, when they arrive, we put a small bracelet on them. We offer them a small bracelet, the color of their neighborhood, to help them remember, to perhaps make a connection between the color and where they live. How have dementia design principles been implemented in the planning of the village? In fact, in conceptualizing spaces, architects often avoid there being dark corners. Why? because someone who has Alzheimer's disease has difficulties not only with memory, but also at certain moments in the evolution of their disease, disorders that we call visual-spatial disorders. Black actually looks like emptiness, like a void. But emptiness is scary. So if, for example, there is a black square on the ground because there was a hole and we filled it in with black, the person who has Alzheimer's disease will try to walk around this black thing. There is something that is black or dark, so in fact, we use black or dark as a repellent, that is to say in places where we don't want people to go, 
we make them dark. In the village, you may have seen on the map that there is a central square called the Bastide. This is the name used in the Landes to refer to the village square. And there are arches. The arches are rather dark underneath, and so is the exit from the village. It's more in the places where we want to avoid people finding their way and saying to themselves, I have to get out that way. So we use darkness to discourage them from going there. By contrast, we have to use light to attract people. So are there any specific facilities for visiting families on site? Is there a special room where people are received or where they could possibly spend the night? Families who come to see their loved ones have at their disposal nine studios in which families who are from far away can, for a ridiculous price compared to a hotel, come for several days to visit. But in the village principal, we only welcome people with Alzheimer's disease. It is not a place where we accommodate others. They can come visit, sleep for a few nights, but they can't live there. You also have a brasserie, grocery store, a media library, a hairdresser. How did you decide which facilities to include? These places were designed for specific people. The media library and the auditorium are third-party places, that is to say places where, with two separate entrances, villagers will be able to go, but also people from outside the village. They'll be able to meet. The health center is private and is within the village walls. The brasserie and the hairdresser are places that can be open to both families and villagers. And on the other hand, the grocery store is a place that is only for villagers because it is not a real grocery store. There is no exchange of money. It's more like a pantry where every day the villagers go shopping with their shopping list to find what is needed at home to be able to make the meal. But there is no exchange of money, so there is no one from outside coming to the grocery store. So you said that for the media library and the auditorium, the villagers can go there through a different entrance. Do they go alone? For time in the media library, the villagers are accompanied either by their family or by a facilitator. This will be for an activity that is taking place at a given time. As for the auditorium, we don't go there unless there is a show, a, a film screening, so there is always someone able to accompany them. The villagers that we welcome mostly have an illness that is moderate, moderately severe to severe. Here, there are very few who are at the beginning of their illness who could go completely on their own. I think I read that you intend to open the restaurant to the public. Has that already happened? Not yet, not totally. Currently, the brasserie is open mainly to families and all visitors who come, and volunteers. But for the moment, there are no people from the city, for example, who come to eat here. This requires an amount of logistical organization, which is much larger than a simple retirement home would need to employ. So you have to imagine things differently. And what are the advantages of doing that? The main idea is to change the way people think about Alzheimer's disease. So we open up and let people live together. But the problem surrounding the opening of the village to the public is an ethical question. Because indeed we must, must respect the private lives of the villagers and their families. It's not a place where outsiders can come to just look. But we are trying to change the outlook of the entire population related to this disease to give an understanding of what is needed in terms of support and environment. So the idea is less for the people living with Alzheimer's and more for the people who aren't. Both. For this type of change, it's for both, yes.
Please, can you tell our listeners how the residence spaces are furnished? People bring their own furniture, all from home. In the room, there is only the bed, which is a so-called Alzheimer's bed, which goes to the lowest position, designed especially for people who have Alzheimer's disease. Otherwise, everything else is brought by them, an armchair, a wardrobe. This creates the framework to build as much of a familiar environment as possible and creates a sense of security. Finally, if we're talking about the future of senior living environments for people with dementia, what do you think is the most important thing to remember? For me, the most important thing is the liberty to come and For me, the most important thing is the freedom to come and go, as few constraints as possible. And this idea that we call dispositive benevolence, that is to say, creating a kind environment, one that empowers people to enjoy nature as they wish, without anguish, to have their world and our world interact in the best possible way. This has been so very interesting and helpful, Gail. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Au revoir. Bonne journée. Au revoir. And you'll find links to Le Village Londay and the World Alzheimer's Report 2023 on the podcast page for this episode at www.thirdage.design. We'll be back to our usual format for next month, including the Innovation Spotlight, when we will look at a unique approach to senior loneliness from the United Kingdom. And of course, a review of the TAD International Events Calendar for 2024. Also, our World Series of Design will continue as we examine the burning question, when is a cruise ship not a cruise ship? Well, when it's a US-based and landlocked independent living and assisted living facility. Thank you to today's special guest, Gail-Marie Baul of Le Village Landais to Anita Herbert for her input and translation skills, to Valerie Adler of The Right Website who recorded the English translation of Gail's answers, and to our producer, Mike Scales, who had a lot more editing this month. And finally, to you for joining us. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley, and I do hope you'll join me for the next one. Mm-hmm.